You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Gracious God, open our hearts and our minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we may receive with joy what you have to say to us today. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning. My name is Elizabeth Hayes. I'm glad to be with you this morning. And if you've been with us, no, no, we're in a sermon series called Pointing to the Promise. So far in this series, we have been zooming through some really major histories of the Old Testament as we look for signposts, signs pointing to the future promises of the kingdom of God. And so when we left the Israelites last week, the family of Israel, they had joined Joseph, their brother, Israel's son, in Egypt and they'd been saved from famine there, and Joseph had this position of influence. And when our story picks up this week in the book of Exodus, a lot of time has passed. Many centuries have passed. In fact, more time has passed between last week's story and this week's story than the entire history of the United States. So a lot can happen in that amount of time, right? And in fact, a lot did happen. Over the course of those centuries, the Israelites grew in number. They lost favor in Egypt, and eventually they became enslaved. And at the beginning of our reading today, the Israelites had been suffering under brutal and oppressive slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. God had appointed Moses to negotiate with Pharaoh. Maybe you've heard the story and uh, about, about letting his people go. And then after God sent 10 plagues to Pharaoh and to Egypt, Pharaoh finally agreed to let the Israelites go. But just as the Israelites fled, Pharaoh changed his mind. He realized that was a terrible decision. And so he starts chasing after them with his horses and his chariots and his army. And he's trying to get them back. So that is where our story begins today. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 31. This is God's word. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all that night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with the waters like a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. 
Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant, Moses. This is the word of the Lord. So as I've been um, preparing for this sermon and also thinking about 4th of July coming up, I have been reflecting on something that I find curious, and that is the fact that the two words, liberty and liberation, have completely opposite connotations, especially in our sort of political parlance today, don't they? So the words themselves, they're, they're quite similar. They come from the same root. They both are about freedom. But in our society in particular, the two words strike a really different chord. For some of you, if I say the word liberation, it might make you feel something. And the same might be true for others of you. If I say the word liberty, these, these words, even though they're so similar, they might even be divisive. And I think to me, this is a small example of the fact that our, our society today is really deeply divided on what we understand to be the meaning of freedom. So kids who are here, I want your help for a second. What if I told you that for the rest of the summer, you could spend every day, all day, every day, doing only what makes you happy? How would you feel? <laughs> I'd feel pretty happy about that too. I think if somebody told me that, I probably would not make my bed and I would not put my clothes away and I would spend every day at the pool for the whole rest of the summer. I bet you have some things in your head of what you might do too, right? But you know, eventually, if I do everything and only what makes me happy, it might start to make some other people unhappy, right? It might make my husband a little bit unhappy if I just have piles of my clothes laying on the side of the room, right? And you know, actually, eventually, if I only do what makes me happy, it might even make me unhappy because if I spend all day every day at the pool, I'm gonna get really sunburned, right? <laughs> that would make me unhappy. So here's the question. Is true freedom the ability to do what makes me happy? Is that freedom? And what if my freedom results in someone else's harm? What if my freedom results in my own, my own harm? And is it really even possible for a society to guarantee that each person has the freedom to do what makes them happy? And if it's not possible, which freedoms do we limit and for whom? Well, a lot of smart people have been thinking about these things for a really long time, right? I think that it is remarkable in this story that we just read that God uses Moses to rescue the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt. He makes a way where there was no way and he sets them free. And in this story, God shows us something about what freedom, what liberation for God's people really is. 
It shows us that God is a liberating God. And it points us to the promise that God will ultimately free us, rescue his people from all destruction, all oppression, all sin, all death forever. So we're gonna look at first the meaning of God's liberation. So what does this story tell us about this liberation, this rescue that God promises? And second, we're gonna consider what it means to live as people of this God who liberates. What does it mean to live as people of a liberating God? So first, the meaning of God's liberation. What does this story, this Exodus story, show us about God's liberation? Well, the first thing that it shows us is that God's liberation is not the same as libertarianism. I'm not exactly talking about the political libertarianism here. I'm talking about the sense of being free from all um, authority, right? So I wonder if you've heard this. A number of stories, or a number of studies, sorry, have been performed which compare the behaviors of children on a playground that does not have a fence around it as opposed to the behavior of children on a playground that does have a fence around it. And all the studies show that children on a playground with a fence around it are much more creative, they're much more willing to explore, they're more adventurous, and they're happier, they're more content. That's because real freedom doesn't come from having no authority. It comes from having the right authority. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Carl Ellis, he says it like this. Oppression occurs when people impose their ungodliness or their sin on others, forcing them to suffer the consequences. Thus, true freedom cannot be freedom from God or else it will result in more ungodliness, which will ultimately result in more oppression. Freedom or liberation is being under the right authority, He says, it's being home with my Lord and under the freedom function of God's lordship. So when the Israelites cross the Red Sea, they're free from the oppression of Pharaoh. They're free from being Pharaoh's slaves, but they're not free from all authority. They're not left to themselves. They're liberated from Pharaoh's oppression to God's good rule. And as the Israelites pass through the Red Sea, you know, it's like they're born again. They're reborn as the people of God in a new way. When they come through the waters of the Red Sea, they emerge on the other side as a new nation for whom Yahweh is their king. So God's liberation, God's rescue, it's rescue from the consequences of sin, from oppression, destruction, death, And it's rescue for the authority and the lordship of Yahweh, which is ultimate freedom. Freedom only exists when we're under the control, the authority of the right authority. And the only authority in heaven and on earth that doesn't ultimately lead to oppression is God's. So that's the first thing that we learn about God's liberation. The second thing that we note is that God's liberation isn't licentiousness. That's another big word. The way I'm using it here is to say, licentiousness is complete disregard for any rules or code of conduct. So 
In our society, one of the most highly prized values is the ability to do whatever makes you happy. And you know, it's become almost criminal to criticize somebody for their behavior or belief or action if it's what they say makes them happy. That's because for many Americans, freedom is defined as the ability to live the life that you want to live without any judgment and without any imposition. So I think it's really remarkable then that in this story, God does pick a side. Did you notice the Egyptians said, we better get out of here because God's on their side. God doesn't say, well, it makes Pharaoh really happy to have the Israelites as his slaves. And who am I to judge? I don't want to impose on his freedom. That's not what God says. No, because God's liberation, freedom from oppression, it includes bringing down of the oppressor. Yahweh's liberating power, it is revealed in his rescue at the same time as it is revealed in judgment. Because God knows that true freedom is not simply the ability to do whatever we desire. If we were free to do whatever we want, it would end in our own self-destruction and the destruction of others. You know, Pharaoh, in this narrative, he's a good example of this. He followed his heart, and just like Violet Beauregard and Willy Wonka, his evil got bigger and bigger and bigger, and finally it collapsed in on him and it destroyed him. So while our society might think of liberation as the freedom to live the life that I want to live, God's liberation is different. And that's because he has to curb evil in order to offer us true freedom, whether that's the evil inside of us or the evil out there. He has to curb evil in order to offer us true freedom. You know, a few chapters later, a few chapters further down in Exodus, Just after God has freed the Israelites from slavery, he makes a covenant with Moses and he gives his people the law, this huge set of rules that they're supposed to follow. So just after he liberates the Israelites, God asks them to trust him and to surrender their own way to him. And this isn't like a tit for tat thing. It's not, I saved you, so you have to obey me. No, it's because God knows that this is the only way to find true liberation. So in the Exodus story, God acted to free the Israelites from slavery, not just to leave them to their own ways, but so that this newly liberated people might testify to a new way to be human. The liberated people of God are freed to serve God's purposes because his purposes are the only way to experience true life. So we noted first that God's liberation doesn't free us only to our own authority nor to our own desires, but instead God's liberation, God's rescue, it frees us to God's authority and to God's purposes. So finally, the Exodus narrative shows us that God is the liberator. Over and over throughout the Exodus narrative, you'll notice this phrase being repeated, then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Everything that God does in this story is to show the world who he is. In fact, 
the whole book of Exodus really is like this coming out party for God to show the whole world what his name is, what he's about, what he's like. And this is what he says in his most public act yet. He says uh, this act, which is what will define the Egyptians, how they understand who he is, what does he choose to reveal about himself? He chooses to reveal that he is a God who rescues. You know, the situation that the Egyptians had found themselves in, it's a classic situation of oppression. There's intimidation, humiliation, forced labor, powerlessness. There's even genocide. And God gets involved in all of that. He doesn't stand aloof and say, I'm only getting involved in the spiritual things. No, God gets involved in the personal, the physical, even the political struggles of his people. He is desperately concerned about the souls of his people. But God knows that we're whole people. And this Exodus narrative reveals that he's also concerned about their wages, their working conditions, their physical and emotional health, even their political freedom. So we've seen that God is a liberating God to make a way where there is no way to deliver his people through the Red Sea to freedom. That is the very heart of who God is. This is our God. So what does it mean to live as the people of this God, to live as the people of a liberating God, to live in light of this liberation. Well, I want to propose three ways that we can live as people of a liberating God. The first way is to remember. You know, the Exodus story, it's this iconic story that the people of God have referred back to over and over and over and over again all throughout our history. It's recounted all throughout scripture, especially in the Psalms. It's everywhere in the Psalms. And every time the people of God were in trouble or in need of rescue, they would remember the Exodus, that God turned the Red Sea into dry land and delivered his people to freedom. Every time when it seemed like there was no way forward, no way out, the people of God have remembered how God made a way when there was no way. So why have the people of God come back to this story so often? Well, I think at least in part, it's because this story showed the people of God and shows us that Yahweh is a God who frees, who liberates. No matter what situation the people of God were facing, when they looked towards the future and wondered what God might do, they would look towards the back and remember that Whatever happens, it will be in line with this nature, with God's nature as a liberating God. He liberates. It's what he does. So we today have even more proof of this liberating God, his nature, than the ancient Israelites did. You know, in Exodus, Yahweh freed, he rescued the Israelites from oppression, the oppression of Pharaoh. But many years later, God would send another rescuer who would liberate his people from an even greater oppressor than Pharaoh, 
We are the people of a God who not only delivers his people from oppression and destruction here on earth, but who has also liberated us from the chains of ultimate oppression and destruction, sin and death. Neither sin nor death hold any, have any hold over us who are in Christ Jesus. What freedom do we have? So the first thing that we can do to live as people of this liberator God is to remember the stories of his liberation, to remind ourselves, to remind each other that our God gets down in the gritty business of his people and he takes sides. God liberates. It's who he is. So the second thing that we can do to live as people of this liberator God is hope. I wonder if you knew that in the antebellum South, it's been documented that many enslaved people were given Bibles that included the story of Joseph's enslavement in Egypt, but that omitted the story of God's deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. There are copies of this so-called slave Bible in the Museum of the Bible in DC. So why would slave masters want to do this? What is so important about this story that they would want to keep it out? Well, this story, it reveals that rescue, that liberation from oppression, it's who God is. So for a person who is enslaved to encounter this liberating God through the Exodus story is for that person to have hope. Esau Macaulay, who is a contemporary theologian and Pastor, he writes about the importance of the Exodus narrative for black Christians who were enslaved. He says, black Christians who came to Christ surrounded by the false gospel given to them by their slave masters were right to see in the Exodus narrative a God worthy of their trust. I find this really remarkably powerful. It kind of takes my breath away because in spite of so many reasons that they had to despair, to believe that whoever this God was, he must be against them. In spite of every reason that they had not to believe that this God was good, Macaulay says that when they met this God in the Exodus narrative, this God who liberates, they believed that these early black Christians believed that this God was worthy of their trust, that he was worthy of their hope for freedom. And he's worthy of our hope too. You see, for God's people throughout history, the Exodus story has not just been a historical account of something that happened in the past, of God's liberating activity back then. But it's also an ongoing account of God's liberating activity even now. So, God, this liberating God, he freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. Yes. This liberating God achieved our freedom from sin and death. Yes. This liberating God will one day rule over his kingdom on earth, where destruction and oppression will be no more, where every single person will live in perfect freedom. Yes. And... This living, liberating God is at work achieving that liberation even now, right here in our midst. So 
So as the people of the liberating God, we can live with hope that he will rescue again. The first exodus, it serves as the basis for our hope that in God's ultimate liberation. It's that trail marker that tells us that the summit is up ahead, just around the corner. So ways that we can live as the people of a liberating God. First, we can remember. Second, we can hope. And finally, act. As the people of this liberating God, God who rescues, we are called to work towards liberation as we work to bring the kingdom of God on earth, even now. You know, I've often identified with Moses because I feel that many times in my life, God has called me to do things for which I have no business being involved or for which I'm not talented enough or not patient enough or not eloquent enough or not spiritual enough. And, you know, Moses said all the same things. And I find it so beautiful that God uses this reluctant leader, this reluctant liberator in such mighty ways to free his people, to bring liberation here on the earth. God might not be calling you to be the next Martin Luther King, or maybe he is, I don't know. But I do know that God is calling you to participate in his work of liberation here and now. So when you look around you, where do you see the marks of liberation? When you look around your home or your street or your neighborhood or our city or our country or the world, where do you see the scars of oppression? Where do you see the marks of destruction? The destruction of people's dignity, destruction of people's hopes, destruction of God's good creation. You know, I'm reminded on really almost a daily basis, I, I see a scar of oppression in my neighborhood. It's been well documented that neighborhoods that were historically redlined because they were predominantly black still today have markedly less green space than neighborhoods that were predominantly white at the, during the early 20th century. So from my house, I live near one of those old red lines. And so from my house, I can walk two blocks west and I'm under these just remarkable canopies of shade trees. And it's beautiful and it's cool even in the summertime. And if I walk two blocks east, I'm under the glaring sun and it feels 15 degrees warmer and it's really uncomfortable and I usually walk west. <laughs> so would you lift up your head and look around you? You won't have to look too far to find marks of oppression, to find what is waiting for God's liberation. And would you ask God how he might be in inviting you to join him, the liberating God and his work of liberation? So remember, act, hope. This is not a step-by-step -step guide. It's not a linear process. Inevitably, we will lose hope and we'll need to remember again or be reminded by our church community again of who God is. Or we'll leap into action and we'll be surprised that God is already there doing his work of liberation before us and, and we'll be reminded of who he is. 
And in all of the starting and the stopping, we'll be reminded again and again that God is the liberator. It's God who redeems, not us. It's God who rescues, not us. It's God who delivers, not us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, the God who rescues, we pray that for each one of us who is waiting for your rescue in our life right now, each one of us who's looking around our community or our city or our world, wondering, when are you going to part the Red Sea? We pray, God, that you would show up as that God who rescues, that God who liberates. And we pray, God, that we would help each other to remember, remember who you are when we forget. We thank you, God, for the work of liberation that you've achieved for each one of us through Jesus' death on the cross. And we pray this in his name.